Hello, my name is Gary Williams. I'm the director of the Pastors Academy, and I'm here today with Neil Martin, our former tutor in biblical studies. Neil now teaches at Oxford. He works for Oxford Presbyterian Church and for a charity equipping Christian graduates to serve among undergraduates. But we're here today to introduce Neil's new book, Galatians Reconsidered. Neil, welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Great to have you. Can you tell us, just going back, how were you first drawn to Galatians and what was it that took you to that book in particular? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I confess to have not actually been drawn to Galatians until a particular encounter while I was doing um, master's studies um, in New Testament. Um, so, and I wonder whether other people sometimes share that, finding Galatians very strangely forbidding, or also maybe a little bit locked in a controversy of the past that isn't necessarily a controversy of the present. Um, sometimes people tell me that Galatians is a very difficult book to preach. And I think that um, that was one of the things that made me a little bit wary of it. But anyway, I was sitting in a New Testament letters class doing a master's degree um, probably 10 years ago now. And I remember as we were working our way through it, coming across what seemed to be a, a, a kind of inconsistency, a problem in the text and asking actually in the in the classroom, hey, you know, excuse me, it was it was Jeff Weimer who was lecturing. It was a privilege to sit under him and, and asking him, you know, what's going on here? Could it be this? And basically that what's going on here? Could it be this was the genesis of uh, uh, an interest in Galatians, which has really run from then all the way to the present and and led me. You've got to be careful what, you know, um, questions you ask in class, haven't you? Um, you know, maybe if I hadn't put my hand up, I wouldn't have signed up for 10 years heavy lifting in Greek in order to actually uh, try and amass the tools required to answer the question. Uh, but that's where it began. So, yeah, since then, I've been very involved in it and also. Uh, I think really had my my whole approach to it kind of transformed in that now I think it, it's a fundamentally important kind of prophetic message to the church of today rather than just being uh, something that previously to me I uh, yeah I um, regret to say was something of a dead letter. But you entered it with trepidation, therefore it wasn't you weren't thinking here's here's an easy an easy PhD subject because there's there's the PhDs behind your book, but you weren't you weren't then thinking oh this this will be a, this will be a quick one I'll sort this out easily. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think if I had been thinking at the time about doctoral study, I probably would have uh, naturally veered more towards Gospels than towards form. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so it was, a, it was a departure. But the question was so fascinating that I was like, I've got to do this. I've got to get to the bottom of this. So and ever since then, it's been a bit of an adventure story. You know, I, I felt like I've had an idea to chase and I've been trying to amass the tools required in order to, to get to the bottom of it. Mm -hmm. So let's let's think about what drives your book and, and what drove your research um there's you were puzzled by something in galatians you were puzzled by the way that paul warns the gentile christians can you explain the, the puzzle for us not yet, yeah, yeah answer, okay. but just the puzzle to start with yeah yeah and reassuringly even though this is something which is related to a doctoral research project i think the problem is actually very simple to explain many of us will know you know as we look at what paul is doing as he's writing this letter he's writing to a group of christians that he has relatively recently uh visited where he's relatively recently established a church probably 18 months to two years in the rearview mirror at the point that he writes um, we don't know exactly where these churches were, but they were probably in southern Asia Minor um, in an area which is um, very predominantly populated by regular Greco-Roman pagan people. Um, not to say there aren't, you know, some Jewish synagogues and things floating around, but the, you know, that Paul seems to be writing to a bunch of people who are not Jews, 
as indicated by the fact that now they are being urged to get circumcised. Um, and this is really the underlying situation. Uh, some people have arrived in Galatia encouraging these converts of Paul's um, to uh, confirm to establish their devotion to the God of Israel by doing what good Jews have always done, which is um, get circumcised and uh, then keep the Mosaic law. And the puzzle is that Paul writes to them, and it seems to be from the first chapter to the last, his diagnosis of the situation is that they are returning to something that they've done before. So a classic way to kind of get into that, that many of us would be familiar with in Galatians 5.1, he writes, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by yoke of slavery. And you've just got to ask yourself in that situation, what's with the again, Paul? Mm -hmm. Like that sentence makes perfect sense without it. But as soon as you put it in there, in what sense does getting circumcised look like returning to pagan religion which was their past and then even more strikingly in galatians 4 8 and this is this is where the uh, the classroom question came so galatians 4 8 and 9 paul writes formerly when you did not know god you were slaves to those who by nature are not god so he's conjuring up pagan idolatry here possibly you know even worship of the roman emperor so some pretty toxic stuff in paul's mind but he goes on now that you know god or rather are known by god how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces and you've got to ask yourself look in what possible sense can embracing the jewish law equate to turning back to those weak and miserable forces hmm. that's the question why does paul think they're going back to something that they already have prior experience with hmm. now you talk about the law there being the jewish law it's probably worth just pausing over that because historically a lot of people would read law more generally than that wouldn't they uh, what, why do you say that law in Paul is, is specifically the Jewish law? I mean, I think it's a nuanced question to say law in Paul is a pretty broad category. Paul writes a lot about law. And so we do have to look carefully at what he's saying in each context. But certainly in the context of Galatians, as Paul is talking about law, um, you know, we have a, a huge leg up in answering that as we go back to Galatians 3 and watch him talking about the introduction of law under Moses. Um, and then he talks about what that looks like and what its implications are. He talks about them being under that law. He talks about Jesus actually being willing to come under that law himself. Um, clearly, in its context, that can only mean that he's talking about the Torah and talking about yeah. um, Jewish law and its observances. Mm, thank you. So, OK, so there's there's the puzzle stated. It's it's mm. it's this this word again. How how are they doing the same thing again? If yeah. if they're if they're coming under Jewish law, how is that equivalent to um, to, to going back to their paganism? Yeah. Um, and historically, there's a you know, there's a, there's all sorts of interesting um, points in the past where people that we absolutely should listen to and respect have noted this. And it's just recently that we seem to have got out of the way of thinking this thought. If you're a fan of Augustine, if you read Augustine's commentary on Galatians, there's a there's an amusing moment when I think actually in commentary on Galatians 5.1, he kind of stops and does the Latin equivalent of uh? like, you know, <laughs> what in the world, what in the world are you talking about? And he and he, so he stops and he literally writes like this doesn't make any sense. You can't get circumcised twice. Like, how can you possibly talk about going back in this context? So it's a venerable question. And it's mm. one, the, um, the the way in which I ended up addressing it, it was really encouraging to see actually that up out of the past were coming these voices who were handling it the same way. But it's just something for reasons of history. And we could talk about these maybe later. We, we've got used to not not spotting the oddity of it. And if you've not spotted the oddity, you won't, you know, pursue it through to its logical conclusion. 
Hmm. So with that oddity in view, then, um, let, let's come to the heart of, of your argument. Mm. How how can the puzzle be explained? How can the two things be, yeah. um, if not if not identical, at least of, of the, the same order of thing? Yeah. Um, I mean, there are lots of different answers to, to the question out there. And um, uh, I, you know, I'd encourage you to have a look at the book if you want to see different ways in which people have looked at it in the past. But I'll, I'll cut to the chase and say how I think you know, on the balance of the evidence, um, how I think we should handle this. And it's to do with the fact that actually it's to do with taking seriously the, the pagan background of Paul's readers. Um, this is something that we should be very comfortable with and familiar with, even within the context of Galatians itself. As I've said in Galatians 4, he talks about their devotion to not gods. He talks about their enslavement to them. And then if we think more broadly in terms of Acts, and we think about, you know, probably Acts 13 and 14 give us the context for Paul engaging with people in this region. And that's where we come across, you know, Paul and Barnabas in Lystra, you know, healing someone in the power of God. And then, you know, there's this extraordinary moment where the, you know, the locals come out and kind of sacrifice a, a bull or they attempt to, and they try and put wreaths on Paul and Barnabas and name them as Zeus and Hermes. And you get this picture of like, wow, okay, this is the pagan religion of these people. Actually, that story is very revealing um, I always used to read that as a kind of, you know, a, a first century carnival moment. Um, you know, it sounds like a celebration. Oh, goody, Zeus and Hermes have appeared. Um, but actually what's going on in Lystra is only, you know, um, uh, you know, a short track down the road from a place called Tyana, which is in the ancient world, the home of the Asia Minor flood myth. So the, the, the equivalent of the actual Noah story that we have in our Bibles. Um, and in that story, Zeus and Hermes appear. Uh, they appear in disguise as two travellers and they go from house to house in the region looking for hospitality and they're refused everywhere that they go. And finally, they end up in this um, uh, the, the house of an elderly couple called Philemon and Balkis, who finally welcome them in. And at this point, the gods reveal themselves. But what they say is very interesting. They say, because you've welcomed us, we won't destroy you but we will destroy the entirety of the rest of this region. And so it gives you both a sense of what's happening in Acts 14. The reason they're bringing out bulls and wreaths to Paul and Barnabas is not joy, it's fear. They, um, but it also is indicative of the fact that this is how they think about the gods. There are certain ways that the gods need to be scratched, certain itches that they have. You have to kind of guess it. The gods aren't going to tell you. You will have to work out what it is that they want. And if you get it wrong, they will wipe you out. And you see that in the religious life, in the archaeology of the region as well, where people are perpetually in the business of trying to make offerings to the gods in order to guarantee that their crops are fruitful. And then they must remember at the end of the harvest cycle to come back and make appropriate thanks. It's this kind of continual gardening of this relationship between humanity and deity, trying to make sure that you may not be able to control the gods, but you do everything you can. You play your cards right in order to keep them on side. And there are lots of things to do, rituals to fulfill, purity rites to engage in, things you should eat, things you shouldn't eat, dot, dot, dot. So just imagine that that's the background. These are the kind of people that Paul's writing to. These are the kind of people who've been converted through his ministry. And then imagine that 18 months or two years later, a bunch of enthusiastic, we'll, we'll leave it at that. There are all kinds of debates about exactly what the motives of these people were but let's say enthusiastic jewish christians arrive saying you know you've heard this gospel from paul but let us complete the job let us give you all these extra jewish laws to keep because that's what jews have always done you kind of welcome to the family jews have always done this since abraham so you should as well imagine how that would have been received by people with that background 
if you give them festivals to keep, if you give them purity rights to observe, if you give them food laws to participate in, if you give them circumcision as this quintessentially costly, permanent, tangible offering of oneself to God, it's incredibly natural that these people would just respond to that and think that it's doing for them with their new God exactly what their old offerings did for them with their old gods, right? And so the reason I think why Paul says is that they're going back, they're doing again what they've done before, is not that there's something fundamentally wrong with these Jewish practices. The problem is how they're making these Gentiles think. They're bringing back kind of out of what Paul has hoped is the grave, um, bringing up out of that past these expectations, these ways of thinking about humans, how humans and, and the gods relate but now applying them to the relationship between humans and the God of Israel. And that's the reason why Paul, I think here, beyond anything we see in any other letter, is just like, no, 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 no. Because that's not the way in which God relates to human beings. The God of the Bible relates to us as the initiative taker, as the grace giver, not as the one who can be gamed into doing us favours and giving us what we want. Hmm. Thank you. That's a great, great summary. Having read the book, I can I can confirm that's a great summary of, of the insight, the fundamental insight of the book. And um, it strikes me that it it highlights the way in which your I, I by saying your Paul, I don't mean that you've invented him, but your 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 account of Paul mm-hmm. highlights Paul the pastor, um, mm-hmm. and and how your work, while it is a work of exegesis. Um, I mean, obviously, especially in the in the in the doctorate behind it, but it is it's an exegetical work. It's also a work that relies on spiritual insight into into sort of spiritual dynamics. Yeah. Um, can you can you say a bit more about Paul the pastor and the, and the, the spiritual aspect of of his argument? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a great point, Gary. I think it's a both and. I, I wouldn't want to see mm. Paul the pastor as played off against Paul the theologian. I think in some ways this is really helping us see more even maybe more a profound depth to Paul the theologian because those great classic kind of reformation truths those lines that we've all kind of um benefited from and taken to heart so much from Galatians 2 you know um we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law but by faith in Jesus Christ that's true and and so much more so with this isn't it because it's not just saying there's some kind of tension here between Paul's Christianity or nascent Christianity and the Judaism which he was from but it's saying there's a massive contrast between the God of Israel and every other God the the entire pagan structure of the way structure of the way that we think is is under is in the crosshairs here so I think Paul is making a massive theological claim it's a bigger claim and a more relevant claim than maybe we're conditioned to imagine but at the same time I think you're right Paul is showing here an incredible level of astute in terms of almost pastoral psychology what he's aware of is the fact that and i think he's completely bought into the idea that when someone says yes they receive the gospel and and christ takes hold of them that that's a moment of massive and irrevocable transition nonetheless it remains the case that things that happen to them and expectations that they imbibed prior to that moment are still things with which we have to contend pastorally so he's aware of the fact that these people from their mother's knee have been exposed to certain types of spiritual assumptions. Mm-hmm. And he thinks that these things are need to be guarded against and needed to be pastored wisely 
even in their new spiritual presence. And actually, this turns out to be something, this level of kind of pastoral acumen that we see from Paul is something that actually, when you start to look for it, you see everywhere else. So my favorite example is in 1 Corinthians 8. Um, you know, here Paul is approached by the Christians in Corinth asking, is it okay if we take our new Christian mates down to the idol temple? And Paul basically wants to say, well, you know, let's think theologically first. We're all on the same page. We're monotheists now. So an idol isn't actually any kind of rival to God. And there's a sense in which you don't need to worry about it as a result. But he says in 1 Corinthians 8, 7, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak, it's defiled. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? He says that because they're accustomed to it, that's now affect affecting their present. However signed up they may be kind of mentally and theologically to this monotheistic reality, you still have to guard them against putting them back in a situation where all those old reflexes are just going to be triggered and they'll find themselves behaving like devotees of a, of a pagan god, even without them wanting to. Hmm. Um, and I think wherever we see Paul on this strength and weakness kick in, in 1 Corinthians and Romans, we're also seeing it cropping up in Galatians. Often what he's doing is acknowledging the fact that these are strengths or weaknesses that are actually things that have been worked into us and have become habituated through the whole run of our lives, whether that's our pre-Christian lives or also concurrently with our Christian life in the culture that we inhabit. And that then brings us you know, to the one of the reasons why I think this is so contemporary, because many people in our churches have been converted out of other quasi pagan backgrounds and also i take it all of us are pretty much immersed in a quasi pagan context which is reinforcing all sorts of assumptions about the way the world works which are totally alien to the vision of scripture hmm. so let, let's think a bit more about that then about the the, the applicability of galatians on on this reading mm -hmm. um so i think we can struggle to apply galatians sometimes can't we if if we think um uh but i'm not i'm not wanting to go under the jewish law yeah um but your 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 argument sort of makes the the, the application much bigger and more searching in a way because yeah. it says be very very careful um it is it isn't just about whether something's okay or not as your one corinthians 8 example highlights yeah. or, or indeed paul's paul's divergent practice on circumcision you know sometimes yeah. it's okay to circumcise it yeah, yeah not just about whether the practice is okay it's about sensitivity to people's spiritual background and what things will mean to them if you do it yeah. so can you just give us a, a, a quick summary of, of of the sort of the big application of this this part of paul's argument in galatians for us today what, what what's he telling us what what are we missing perhaps that that this reading of galatians would teach us and if yeah. you can if you can give us not just the kind of the general principle but maybe a, a concrete example as well yeah i mean i think you're absolutely right and it, it's it's worth repeating isn't it it feels like a completely alien thing for us to say about this letter given all that we've kind of received on it to say that jewish law is not the problem but actually paul says it in the letter doesn't he, he says look neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value what he's trying to say is what it does to you when you receive it and if you've got a prior category for um uh uh um responding to the gods in some kind of particular way it's just going to be activated by this new practice that you're taking on in a destructive form so i think it's that that we then have to 
kind of carry across the chasm between Paul's time and our own and ask ourselves, what does that actually look like? And I think, that, I mean, there are all kinds of interesting ways that you could apply this, but at the structural level, I think, you know, if we think of ourselves in a similar situation, if as pastors or in with our friends, we're trying to introduce people who are new to the faith into church world, I think our instinct is often and this is kind of manifested on a large scale in terms of all, all sorts of ways churches are actually structured, is we think that we need to make church look as much like what they're familiar with as possible. You know, we try we need to try to approach them in terms of the way that we speak in the same way. We need to make it look and feel the way that we advertise our events in exactly the same way. We need to sing in the same kind of way just to minimize the dissonance, to minimize the distance between what these people are used to and what it is that we're trying to get them into. And the thing which is really striking from Galatians is I think Paul would just say, look, that's that's absolutely the wrong way to think. Because the more points of connection we create between what we have in our church world and the world that they come from, the more likely it is that they will simply bring the assumptions from that world with them into the church and that they will have this superficially Christian vision of what it looks like to believe this stuff. But their underlying sense of how it works, it's, it's kind of basic um, propelling engine will still be the engine that it's been inherited from all these things which we've allowed to look so superficially similar. So I think it really does have some incredibly challenging things to say to us about how we run church. I don't think it means that we need to be kind of deliberately as weird as possible. But I think as a minimum, we need to be talking about this kind of stuff. We need to be addressing from our, in our preaching and in our pastoral work, what do people actually have in the background? What's in the past? What's under the ground before we start thinking about what to build on the surface and then thinking about asking ourselves the question, not just have I said this truthfully and accurately as I've declared these gospel realities to people, but how has it been heard? How has it been received? Um, so that's one side of it. And that might leave us think, feeling kind of all so very cozy. You know, it's like, oh, well, we're, you know, we're not that kind of church. We're actually, you know, um, we're very angular and different from the culture. So we've got nothing to worry about in Galatians. But actually, I think we really do, because the converse of this is then if that's how we handle the the uh, the new disciple or the immature Christian, then we have to think, well, how do we handle the mature Christian? And in the kind of churches where, you know, I've spent some of my time and, and still, um, you know, delightfully do, it's very easy to feel that maturity is something where we can just allow ourselves to kind of uh, get um, cosy in some kind of enclave, which has its own, just its own vocabulary. It has its own in-house issues. And we don't really engage with or even listen very much to the culture at all. But I think Paul would want to say, look, his vision in Galatians is not that we just distance ourselves and stay distant. What Paul wants is to have a situation where people are spiritually transformed and matured to the point where they're then able to go out and engage the culture without it triggering all of this bad yeah. stuff. In yeah. the past. Yeah. You know, Paul's own vision for himself, isn't it, is that he was able to be a Jew to the Jews and a Gentile to the Gentiles in order to save as many as possible. And so I think that's his goal for the Galatians too. So it's like a, his initial step pastorally with them is to say, no, don't get into all this Jewish law stuff because you're not mature enough yet to handle it. You haven't mm -hmm. got sufficient detachment from the way you thought about things like this in the past. But I don't think he wants to keep them there kind of wrapped up in, in cotton wool, you know, saying like never, never touch anything which is, um, you know, from the culture around you. What he wants is us to be sufficiently mature and resilient 
so we can actually go out and deliberately engage sympathetically incredibly with the world and so i guess galatians is saying both those two things at the same time you know it, it's challenging us if our vision of churches we've got to make it just like the the world mm. but it's also challenging us if our church is is not engaged with the world at all he wants us i think to guard the immature against bringing things across from their past into the present but he also wants us to um target maturity as a means uh for us then to serve engaging moving towards the culture deliberately hmm. so i'm thinking there's quite a bit of resonance isn't there between that argument and and a fair amount of stuff that's being written at the moment about the need for I mean, retreat is the wrong word, but for but for going deep in the church and for catechesis and for for strong discipleship, and and what what you're saying here would be especially at the beginning. This is this is the time for the clear distinction and for and for stepping back from worldly patterns of of thinking and living and going deep, in the hope that it that that when when once we've grown in that respect, it then becomes safer for us to take a step back to our former world in in outreach but but without therefore the the immediate risk of succumbing to the to the old patterns yeah and this is something there's been some fabulous work done on this recently just looking back that this is what our brothers and sisters in the first three or four centuries of church world did hmm. um you know so you look at cyprian in north africa uh alan crider's you know excellent book on this is i think really draws this out um that um you know that that church when people expressed an interest from the culture they didn't just kind of rush them straight into the life of the community but they catechized them they were deliberately trying to overwrite some of their pagan expectations so that when they entered into christian fellowship they didn't just kind of cut and paste the new externals onto a set of pre-established internals but they actually had a totally new vision of who this god was and how he operated and i just think we you know shame on me as i look back on my own pastoral practice when i've worked with new christians i have my first thought has been okay this is great tabula rasa you know new you know new day um what do we build you know what should we give this person what should we construct but christians in the past have had the smarts to ask the question what's there already like you know what foundation do we need to lay and what foundations do we need to remove in order to make sure that the building is secure and it is actually the thing that it looks like. So I think it's a big challenge to us to think that through carefully. Mm, mm. That's really helpful, Neil. Thank you so much. And that that's where you get at the end of the book. So so those out there who are, who are contemplating buying the book, which, by the way, I think there's a discount on the uh, London Seminary blog. If you look at Neil's got a couple, couple of articles there, there's a discount available on buying the book. If you get the book and you read it, really you've you've i mean you, you would get to the end anyway because it's very very readable and it, and it goes you feel like you're on a quest with neil but you've really got to make sure you do get to the end because it's at the end that it all suddenly turns around to um to come back to us and to say well this makes a real difference and we may have got some things quite seriously wrong here and i found that 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 that, that ending of the book very searching um, yeah so and that's always been for me you you kind of asked what got me into galatians i think what got me through the project was always it's never been and and a primarily academic journey for me it's always been you know i've served as a pastor in the church i still do and i just feel really passionate 
that that's where the thing must land. And so right from that first classroom question, what lit up in me was, that, oh, my goodness, we're not doing this right. We're not listening as God's people to this incredibly potent, important text. And we've 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 shoehorned it into this place where you feel like Galatians has only got something to say to you if you're tempted to get circumcised. Not many of us are in that place. Um, and it's actually something which has this vast platform within the church of our own time you know the reality is that even though we're two millennia distant from what we're reading about here we are more like paul's pagan culture today than probably any other culture since then you know we may not go down and worship at the temple temples of zeus and artemis and all this kind of stuff you know but our instinct as a culture to always be trying to do things that give us the future we think we deserve that's a fundamentally pagan way of thinking. And yet it is absolutely the orientation of the way we think about our money, the way that we think about our image, the way we think about our social network, the way we think about our careers. It's all making these little inputs in order to make the future give us what we want, exactly like the pagans were doing with their offerings. If that's even remotely a close analysis of what's happening within our world and, and in the world that all of us as Christians inhabit, where, you know, whether we want to or not, Galatians is coming straight at us. It's a, it, it's absolutely got us in its sights. Um, and it's trying to say, look, to the extent that that stuff is unconsciously replicated under the surface of our Christianity, we're not Christians at all. You know, Paul says to the Galatians, I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. You know, he says to them. In Galatians 5, 3, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is, sorry, uh, in Galatians 5, 2, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Mm -hmm. So once we've understood that the operative word there is you, if you let yourself be circumcised in the in, on the basis of what you think it means, mm -hmm. well, his vision of the cost of that is gigantic, isn't it? You know, he thinks that it's a full-blown kind of, it's the, it's the exit the exit route from authentic faith and that's why he's so agitated in the letter and i just think as a church we need to hear that warning you know i think he would say if you 21st century christians let yourselves embrace this set of you know norms in the culture around you christ will be of no value to you at all so it's a huge wake-up call and uh yeah my hope for the book is that you know it begins that conversation i would love to you know uh yeah, I, I don't feel that I've done anything more than open up the issue. And I'm sure there are wiser pastors out there who can help me figure out what it looks like when it actually lands in the church. But it, it certainly lands with 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 um, quite an impact, I think. Well, we can hear you preaching it there. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, and if that, that little insight of how we seek to engineer the future in the way that paganism does, uh, did, if you'd like to hear more of those kinds of insights, then please get hold of Galatians Reconsidered by Neil Martin. Neil, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure.